I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. How common is abuse in churches? Where does abuse occur? Can abuse happen in any church, or are there some churches more susceptible to situations of abuse? The Uncertain Podcast explores ways the church needs to do better, often the little-discussed subjects related to the church. When it comes to abuse in church, we're all more comfortable thinking abuse happens somewhere else, far, far away. However, this belief leads not only to a plethora of abusers finding sanctuary in churches, it also leads to a deficit in safety for victims. Finally, this belief can lead to intentional covering up and overlooking abuse right in our very communities. This episode's guest is Mike Sloan from Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environment. We have to unpack how our theology has been shaped and been used to take away agency, to isolate people, to, even without intentional malice, used to create an environment where abuse is, sadly, very common. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to highlight this organization. I encourage all listeners to jump on the website netgrace.org and explore the resources listed in the show notes. This podcast supports tearsofeden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you're finding this podcast helpful, I encourage you to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. This is part one of two parts. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm I'm super excited. When I was researching before like launching the nonprofit, I was trying to get get information and find other people who were maybe doing similar work and one person mentioned Grace and then when I looked it up I was like, "Wait, this exists? I had no idea something <laughs> like this existed." Right. <laughs> and then right. my second thought was how come no one else told me about this? And mm. I'm starting to hear about it a little bit more. A few more people have mentioned it and stuff. Yeah. So that's good. So I'm really excited to be able to highlight your organization because mm-hmm. I think it's awesome and super needed. So I would love to hear just in your own words, what Grace does, what uh, you do specifically. Right. So Grace has been around since 2004. We've helped hundreds of churches and Christian organizations in that time. Really, we were founded because of the lack of education, knowledge of how to do any kind of responsible prevention, and then responding to abuse when it does come to light. So often, the people who founded Grace are founder Boz Chavijan and Diane Langberg, Dr. Langberg. She's a therapist and counselor, and then Victor Veith. And these are our founding pillars of our organization. Victor is one of the leading experts on child abuse prevention. And for a long time, for a long time, he worked at the Gunderson National Child Protection Training Center. Now he's at the Zero Abuse Project. So these folks, because of their Christian faith and because of the need in churches and Christian organizations, came together and really tried to bring a perspective that is multidisciplinary because you need a variety of perspectives. You need prevention knowledge. You need knowledge of where these issues touch on legalities and law enforcement issues, mental Mm -hmm. health issues, 
and all of that. But tying that all together was their love for God and the church to see churches do better. And so as a whole, we exist to empower churches, to educate them, help them with prevention and response. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? We do, there's two major parts of what we do. There's a side of grace that does independent assessments and investigations in organizations. So we'll do fact finding. Uh, we'll write a report in the wake of some allegation or when there's not clarity or there's, we need to shed light on something that's happened. Often it's in the past. Sometimes it's in the past and in, in the present as well, they're dealing with. So we bring often a multidisciplinary team to provide an independent voice where we're doing some fact finding, we're doing analysis and giving recommendations. So the organization can hopefully, with that knowledge, uh, move forward in ways that are healthier and responding in ways that are helpful to victims and holding abusers accountable. And then the other half of what we do is the more proactive prevention side where we're helping churches and organizations with training, with policy development. And that's the side of grace that I head up. And we have what we call our safeguarding initiative. And I'm the director of safeguarding at Grace. So we have this comprehensive approach where we partner with, build a relationship with a church or organization. We help them through that relationship take significant steps forward. We train leaders, we train the entire organization, and we have materials for children at an age appropriate level. And then we help with policy development and even consultation on site in, in terms of their building and what's needed. So that's meant to be a kind of a comprehensive helping them take significant steps forward in prevention and response. So that's that half of grace. The other half is the independent assessment and investigative half. Do you, you ever represent churches legally or is it mostly just like consulting for them? So we're not a law firm and we do not give legal advice. We have lawyers on our team and some, and so here's one of the, the interesting things. A lot of things that are in churches in terms of preventative measures and policies are actually from a legal and insurance agency, an insurance perspective. And the focus of it is on risk management and liability, uh, ah. risk, you know, liability reduction. It's not that some of those things aren't good in and of themselves, but that perspective is not the perspective we actually need to make serious progress. In fact, some of the perspective is going to get in the way of serious progress. And so if you're focused simply on risk management and liability concerns, you're focused on the institution. The focus needs to be on people and individuals, victims, the vulnerable. And that's where, in our opinion... Jesus had his focus and the people who hold the power and those who are the guardians of the institution so often are defensive, are taking actions that are short-sighted and that are incredibly harmful to, to survivors. So if you are focused on risk management and liability reduction, you are going to have major gaps in your approach. Uh, so with prevention, let's just take children for an example. With a risk management approach, where's your focus going to be? It's on your volunteers and your staff interacting with children in the structured ministry. But where does most abuse occur? In just the Sunday school hour or just in VBS? Abuse happens at, at any time. 
It happens in the hallways. It happens in unstructured times. Those are some of the riskiest times that we have to account for. So much of abuse is happening in the, the homes of the families and churches. And so we have to not only address child sexual abuse, that's where the main liability is. We have to address emotional abuse. We have to address spiritual abuse. We have to address physical abuse and neglect and so forth. And we have to push prevention beyond the structured ministry and the church property to everywhere. And we have to push it into Christian homes first and foremost, because that's where the greatest uh, amount of abuse happens. So we have to shift our mentality and take a victim-centric approach. And some of the lawyers on our team, they're some of the most victim-centric people that I know. So it's not, again, it's not just because you're uh, in that legal world or have training in the legal world that you're necessarily focused on risk management. Not at all. It depends. And in everything that we do, we're trying to bring a victim-centric approach. Can you give an example of what victim-centric would look like and then also what an institution trying to protect itself might look like also? So... When you have a disclosure, let's say, of abuse, and let's say it's a child discloses, and it's a leader who's accused, how we respond to that victim is often going to set them, it's, it's often a watershed moment. Uh, those who are child therapists and work in this field with trauma understand that how we respond to a victim, if we respond with skepticism, we respond with disbelief, often that is going to be re-traumatizing. And there is a failure to understand what bravery it took in that moment for that child to come forward, where they have been violated in this incredibly egregious way by someone in a position typically of power and trust. What an incredible thing for them to again make themselves vulnerable and come forward to someone again who is in a position of power and trust. And for them not to receive support and belief in that moment can be incredibly re-traumatizing. So what we need is organizations, need churches and leaders to promote a perspective, dispel myths like false allegations are common. That's just a myth. How do you respond when someone comes forward? What are ways to respond that are affirming and helping them and not re-traumatizing them? We just need to have a perspective that it doesn't matter who it is, and so often the dynamic in churches is, let's say that teenager, they're a mess. They're exhibiting behaviors. They're, I hear this all the time from churches. Well, that teens, they seek attention. They're manipulative. They lie. They smoke, whatever it is. And all of that is used to write them off. When those who understand these issues on a deeper level know, that's what you expect. That's typical when someone is being subjected to something so incredibly egregious such a deep personal violation as abuse. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So you're saying like these signs that people would normally say that's a rebellious, they're a rebellious person. They lie. They do all those things. Usually that is a sign of their response to trauma. Yes, it often is. And so for us to write victims off and say, okay, on the other hand, then let's say it's this elder or pastor who is the model. Everybody, he's gregarious. Everybody likes him. He's been to seminary. He speaks these amazing words and says these incredible prayers. And wow, he would just never do anything like this. That is just, so that level of denial, right? Of taking 
let's just dismiss this victim and let's believe the perpetrator. That's a pattern. And so when you have a response, though, it's not it, it's, it goes way beyond believing. It's how do you then assess the situation going on, going from there. If you are taking a victim-centric approach, you are going to say, first of all, we believe this victim. We're going to report this to the authorities and let them investigate. We're also going to acknowledge often there are more victims. And so an insurance liability risk management approach is not interested in uncovering more victims. They have a vested interest in not doing that. Uh, A victim-centric approach is going to say, we need to shed light on this and we need to ask that question. Who else did this person have access to? And are there other victims and what can we do for them? And that's, of course, that's scary. You don't know fully what's happening, but that's the path that churches should go down. Why might a church choose to have a more risk protection approach? Often it's, it comes down to the leadership. The leaders are in charge. They're in charge of the organization. They're in charge of the budget. And that's how they think is often we are in charge of stewarding this organization. And that's where their first thought goes to. And they're missing the mentality that, in our opinion, from the Bible, leaders should have, which is first and foremost, your position does not exist for an organization or your position. It exists first and foremost for those who are vulnerable. And so we need leaders to understand abuse is a systemic issue. And you have to work on a culture where everyone is educated. If there's going to be any shot at thorough prevention and any kind of adequate response, you have a lot of work to do. You have to engage the whole community in getting educated and understanding dynamics of abuse and understanding how prevalent abuse is, countering denial and myths and establishing clear policies, clear boundaries for how everyone interacts with not just kids, but each other, and emphasizing respect and consent and touch and other areas, and a culture really of accountability. So that's a lot. We could walk through a lot of that in more mm-hmm. detail and unpack that. But leaders in, in our work, are, are they often just have not had that perspective. I think historically, there's a lot of reasons why we could go into as well. In conservative denominations, that history is connected to a history in the U.S. of churches defending, splitting off and defending or opposing slavery. And I think a lot of that history has been lost to people in the pews and leaders, and they're not thinking, well, if for years and years, the Bible was used as a way to justify oppression, we're going to have some systemic problems. We have to wrap our head around. We have to un- we have to unpack how our theology has been shaped and been used to take away agency, to isolate people, to even without intentional malice, used to create an environment where abuse is sadly very common. Oh, there's so so much in there. So many things that I want to follow up. Many different trails. But yeah, that is something that I'm becoming aware of as I'm studying spiritual abuse is how much that history has affected the foundation of how we interact with absolutely abuse right now. And that's, it's so, it's scary. It's so scary. You had mentioned a, a minute ago that you have a curriculum for children, like teaching children. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
So in our safeguarding initiative, all the churches we work with, we have children's materials that is basically just age-appropriate safety talks explaining on a very basic level what God says about abuse, what abuse is, a few basic dynamics, and more detailed as they get older, more basic as they are younger, and talking with, in a matter-of-fact fashion, about what is appropriate, and we just work on basic skills. You deserve to be treated with respect. You are incredibly valuable. You have inherent worth. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. There is no excuse for anyone to treat you with anything less than utmost respect. That's not only true of your peers. It's true of adults and how adults treat you. Now, when I was growing up in church, the focus is on accountability for children and how they responded. And it needs to be, in my opinion, everyone, look, everyone needs accountability. Children, of course, they need accountability. Those who have power need more accountability, in my opinion. And so just introducing children to basic ideas about their worth, about appropriate boundaries, about consent. So pair up the young children and let's, you know, okay, ask your, your partner if they, you want to give, hey, I want to give you a high five. See if they say yes or no. If they say no, respect that. If they say yes, give them a high five. And this is how touch should work. Can I give you a hug? And it's not just for children. There are so many cases where this is not happening with adults in church. And there are men, especially, not being held accountable in how they interact with others. So this is a huge problem. So we want to go back and start young. Now, I would say this. So much prevention focuses on children. And I think we need to also be a little bit careful there. It is vital to talk to kids. However, even when kids are educated, they often cannot prevent abuse. They are more likely maybe to disclose afterward, but that can't be our main prevention strategy. Adults have to take ownership of that through education and training, establishing very clear boundaries where there's good supervision and no one's ever alone in church with with a child. And there has to be accountability. It is vital to talk to kids. However, that cannot be our main prevention strategy. Because even when kids have good knowledge, most children in a church setting are not able to prevent an abuser who is determined to cross boundaries. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the myths people believe about abuse? So this is an area where leaders absolutely need to recognize these myths are common in their church. And that's a reality that has to be confronted if we're going to make any kind of progress. The most the most important, broader myth that just has to be addressed, I would just call simple denial. That doesn't happen here. Uh, that would not happen in church. We know everyone here. Someone we know wouldn't do that sort of thing. That is a stubborn, pernicious belief in so many churches I know, and it must be confronted. So we need to begin to confront myths like abuse is rare. It only happens over there or those kinds of churches, those neighborhoods, those ethnicities or socioeconomic levels. No, it occurs in every type of denomination, every socioeconomic level, and so forth and so on. Beyond that, there's so many we could name, but a few simple other common myths would be abusers are usually strangers. That's not true. Most abusers of any kind of abuse are typically known, most often known to their victims, not always, but almost all, almost always. 
I mentioned already this idea that false reports of abuse are common. That's a myth. The research consistently shows most disclosures of abuse are actually true. Even when they come out in an unconventional way or in an unconvincing manner, uh, this is true. Absolutely. Victims want attention or money. Not true. So many leaders do not understand. They have to have, we have a huge deficit of empathy, in my opinion, uh, amongst church leaders to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's more vulnerable, who has been violated. And to understand that by coming forward, often all they're doing is signing up for more pain. Uh, even if others respond well, they're signing up for more pain. And that is something church leaders have to wrap their head around and make more progress in. But there's others, some related to intimate partner violence or domestic violence. If something was going on in that family behind closed doors, we would have known. That's a stubborn, pernicious myth. You often wouldn't. We excuse it. Here's another one. They were abused as a child, and that's that's why this happened. That's not true. <laughs> if that was true, the majority of victims are women. Why aren't there so many more women who are offending because they were abused as children or, or otherwise in their marriages? And it's just not true. Look, that's often an ex convenient excuse that abusers try to use to gain sympathy. And they know they can gain sympathy with people in that way, especially in a church if they throw spiritual language in there. So again, that's, that's a few. There's, there's so many more. And with the positive side of these myths is actual education. And thankfully, we have a ton of great research and education now, books and resources on these issues specific to intimate partner violence, clergy abuse, child abuse. There is a lot out there that churches can avail themselves of. And that's true in some of them are written from a Christian perspective, even. Uh, not all. The, my favorite resources are, but there are plenty of great Christian resources and books. Some churches are not as likely to, to read other sources outside their even theological tradition. That can be a hindrance to them at times, learning more about this. Thanks for joining us today. Tune in tomorrow for part two, and don't forget to check out the resources in the show notes.